Uh, and to that, I want to say to you guys, thank you very much for making my kids love this place. If you've taught them, if you've been around them, if you said hi to them, if you have cared for them in any way, uh, it is a tremendous testimony that my kids love to be here. And I do not take that for granted. That is a tremendous grace that God has given me and that God has given them. Uh, Emily and I are very much glad to be back as well. Even though my kids and Emily are not here today, they had to be at uh, a wedding in in Kentucky, a, a family wedding there there for that, they are ready to be back here. Uh, And so I also have a pastor's wife that is very much excited to be back in the place that she calls home. And we love this place. And I thank you guys for that. We visited other churches while we were gone. We sat under teaching and as, a, as opposed to me standing up here doing the teaching to spend six weeks and have the opportunity to sit under someone else's teaching. Um, what I can tell you is that it was a tremendous blessing, but there really is no place like home and this place is home. And I hope you find it to be the same. If anything, being away has only underscored and reinforced what we knew to be true, and that's that we love this place and we love you guys, and it is good to be back. And now that I'm back, I've got to remember how in the world I do this thing, how I stand up here and preach. Uh, I've loved listening to the elders and listening to some of their stories. I haven't listened to them all, but I'm going to be able to get through them uh, this week and listen to them and... uh, I hope you guys have been blessed. We here at Providence are a pretty young church, but we are tremendously blessed with godly, hardworking, dedicated men that love each of you. Uh, And I am blessed to serve side by side with them, just as I had said earlier. And I do not take that for granted uh, either. And now that these men have had their chance to get up here and tell you the one thing that they would tell you if they only had one chance to tell you one thing... This Sunday is my turn to stand up here and say, if I could tell you one thing, this is what I would tell you. And I cannot tell you how unfair it is to take a preacher who's not preached for six weeks and say, you can only talk about one thing whenever you get up there. That is a cruel punishment uh, for me, but uh, I think it's downright dirty, actually. But I think it's a task that God has uh, used to kind of sharpen me this week and focus me in where my heart and my mind needs to be, and it's the task that I have this morning, so I'll see what I can uh, do. I wonder if you've been here over the course of the last month, if you've listened to these guys share their stories and communicate that one thing, that one truth that they would communicate to you. Uh, I wonder if you've thought about, if you had the chance to get up here and speak, what you would share if you just had one thing or or maybe if that idea of you standing up here to speak never even crossed your mind, but just the idea that if you could only communicate one thing to someone about something, what would that one thing be? If you had one chance, if you had one moment, if there's only one thing that the rest of the world could take from your life, let's ask it that way, what would be that one thing that you would communicate? If you fast forward in your life and you think about your kids and you send your kids off to college or maybe they get married or maybe they're just out on their own making their own life. If you had one thing that your kids could take from you, from your life, if you could only give them one message that you wanted them to hang on to, what would be that one thing that you wanted to make sure that they knew? 
Or in my case, as a pastor, if you were to move away or you were to attend another church or somehow have to, have to, have to no longer be here at Providence for, for, for some reason, what's the one thing that I'd want you to remember from this place and from my teaching? What's the one thing I'd want you to know above all others? It's a pretty weighty thing to think through, isn't it? It's a pretty heavy thing to kind of lay on yourself, to kind of lay on your heart, to think what is so important that if I could only give them this one thing, if my kids could only remember me for one thing, this is what I'd want them to remember me for. What's the one thing you'd want? What's the one thing I'd want you to remember in your best moments and in your worst, in your suffering and in your joy? When God gives and when God takes away, when life is crazy and when life is ordinary, what's the one thing that I could communicate to you that would be for all of those moments? If I just had one chance, this would be it. John chapter 21 has become my favorite text in all of Scripture. It has served for me as a balm to an open wound, It has become a foundational touchstone for me whenever I consider what ministry should look like and whenever I forget what it is in the world I am doing here is a clarifying directive straight from Jesus. So I want to set the stage for this text. I want to walk through John chapter 21 and what happens in this chapter. It's one that I've shared here a time or two in my time at Providence, but I want to go back and revisit it because it's meant so much to me And it communicates so many aspects that I want to communicate to you this morning. So the stage for this text is Jesus has been crucified. He's been betrayed. He's been led to the cross. He's been crucified. He's been buried. But he's also been resurrected. He's risen from the dead. Easter has happened. He's appeared to the disciples multiple times. He's appeared to Thomas. He's eaten with the disciples They've gone from a lost, despondent, aimless bunch of men right after Jesus had died. A group of men that had no future, a group of men that were wondering if they had any safety, if their families had any safety because they had been associated with this Jesus. A group of men that had nothing really left to live for. They've gone from that group of men to now a group of men that had received their rallying cry, that had seen Jesus risen again, that had put their hands in the side where Jesus had been struck with the spear. They had been transformed completely from despondent and hopeless to full of joy and vigor and hope. And that's why John chapter 21 stands out as such an odd thing for me when you read it. They've just seen Jesus risen from the dead. You know the celebration here at Providence that is Easter Sunday. How we celebrate that moment. How Paul says that the resurrection changes everything. They've seen it. They've experienced it. They haven't just read about it in the, the text. They haven't just thought about it. They haven't just considered it. They've seen it. And where do we find them in John chapter 21? They're not bold. They're not out preaching. 
They're not going out like their hair is on fire, like we see in Acts, telling everyone, no matter what happens, consequences, completely disregarded. That's the book of Acts. But that's not what we see. Instead, in John chapter 21, what we see is something totally different. Their leader has been brought back to life. They've seen it. And then this is what we read in John chapter 21, verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Canaan and and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of the disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. They went out and they got in the boat, but that night they caught nothing. So Jesus is alive. He's walked out of the tomb. He's appeared to the disciples. They know that everything Jesus said was true. They've begun to understand what they've missed over the last three years of his teaching. And what do they go and do after that? They go fishing. They head out on the lake and they go fishing. Does that strike you as odd? It does me. That doesn't seem to make any sense. But it's not just fishing like you and I might go fishing, hopping on a a boat, heading out there and catching whatever you may find, piranhas or whatever may be in the lake that the, the students found. They're not going out and just doing it for fun. You see, it's a little something more to them. It means something else. They're going fishing because that's what they know. And Peter's the one that suggests it. He's like, I I don't know what you guys are doing. Guys, I I know we just saw Jesus, but we're just going to go fishing. And they're like, well, I I mean, I I guess we can come too. I mean, okay. So Peter goes fishing. They come along, and that's what they do. Now, you need to understand that's what they do. Before Jesus called them, most of these men that, that, that go out with Peter back on the boat, that was their job. That was their way of life. That was their livelihood. That's what they knew. They were fishermen. So Peter's just going back to the thing that he knows best. He's going back out on the boat because that's what he knows. That's his comfort zone. That's home for him. He's going back on the boat because that makes sense to him. It's what they were doing before they met Jesus. And now, after Jesus is risen from the dead, you would think they would do anything but that. But that is what they do. It doesn't compute for me. It doesn't add up. It doesn't make any sense as to how this would be the chain of events. But then you read the rest of the story And it starts to click. So let's keep reading. Verse 4. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So they were out in the lake. They could see the shore. They couldn't make out who it was that was on the shore. So they're out there. They haven't caught any fish. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it. 
And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of the fish. This is something that mirrors something you read earlier in the Gospels that Jesus had done before. He had told them to cast nets on the other side, and it almost sank the boat that they had so many. So this is something the disciples had seen before, but they knew as fishermen, this is not how it works. You don't go from one side of the boat to the other and all of a sudden find a haul of fish unless something miraculous happens. And that's when Peter recognizes, verse 7, that it's Jesus. Uh, or actually, that's when John recognizes this Jesus. The disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. I love how it says that. He threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging in a net full of fish. But Peter wasn't waiting for that. Peter needed to get to the shore. They were not far from the land, but only a hundred yards off. So that's, that's the scene. That's the picture. Jesus is there. He says, hey, put it on the other side of the boat. Whenever this happens, John recognizes, oh, wait a minute. I've seen this before. That's Jesus. Peter says, oh, you're right. It is. And he doesn't say, let's get this stuff in. Let's get to the boat. He has his full force gump moment where he goes off the boat and he's on his way. He's not waiting for the boat to get to shore. He's not waiting for it to get to dock. He's not counting the fish. He's not worried about any of that. He's got to get to Jesus. He's got to get to Jesus. I love this paragraph so much. The subtlety of Jesus. The ignorance of the disciples. And then verse 7, when Peter recognizes it's Jesus, and everything changes. Everything in that moment changes. You see Peter's true colors, his real person. He wasn't faking being a fisherman again. He just wanted to see Jesus. He just wanted to be with him. So when he realizes it's Jesus, he goes after him. Forget his friends, forget his co-workers, Forget his decency. Forget the fact that he's fully clothed and should not be swimming in the water. Forget all of that stuff. It doesn't matter. He's not worried about self-respect and decency. He's just got to get to Jesus. There's so much desperation living in the words of verse 7. It's palpable. You can feel it. It's, it's there. Do you know why it's there? It's because even though Peter had the joy and the relief of knowing that Jesus was alive, he didn't have the full joy of knowing Jesus' resurrection. He couldn't shake what he had done just before Jesus had died. Do you remember the scene? Jesus had seen Peter in the courtyard as Jesus was going from place to place, as Jesus was on trial before Herod and before Pilate, as Jesus was being whipped and beaten, as Jesus was having a cross put on his back. Jesus could see, Jesus could hear, and what he saw and what he heard was that Peter, his disciple, the one that he had called the rock, the one that he had said, I'll give you the keys to, to, to heaven and to hell and to death, the one who, who said, you get all of these things. You get to be this person. He said, I don't, know who, I don't know who Jesus is. 
I don't know this Jesus you talk of whenever they're, they're asking him, hey, aren't you one of the disciples? Aren't you the one that cut the guy's ears off? And he's like, no, to the point that he curses at them and says, I tell you, I don't know this man. And then he makes eye contact with Jesus. And just as Jesus had prophesied, he hears the rooster crow, and he's destroyed with guilt. He had betrayed Jesus. He'd betrayed his leader. Why? Because he was scared. Because he was full of fear. Because he was weak. And Jesus had seen him in his worst moment. And now that Jesus was alive, he was happy for Jesus. He was happy for his other disciples. But he couldn't look him in the eye. He wasn't worthy. He was guilty. And he had damaged the relationship to a point that he was afraid was beyond repair. Can you think about what Peter would have felt every morning when he woke up from the time that Jesus was crucified until this moment? When he heard those roosters start crowing again every morning. I firmly believe that Peter woke up with bitter tears in his eyes, rolling down his face, tasting the saltiness of his tears because he heard that rooster crow and it was just this reminder of how weak and how fearful, just how terrible he was. The reminder never went away. Every morning it would be there. Every time he walked down the street and he saw a chicken scurry in front of him, He's reminded of how weak and how bad he is. That had to echo in his ears over and over and over. The crow of that rooster. But at this moment, Jesus was standing on the shore. And Peter wasn't going to let him get away. He's giving them the invitation. He's saying, get some fish on the other side. Come join me on the shore. Let's eat some fish for breakfast. Jesus is on the shore giving the invitation, saying, come dine with me. And Peter wasn't going to let that get away. He wasn't going to miss out this time. He wasn't going to get this wrong. He jumped in and he got to Jesus as fast as he can. The desperation that is in that moment. So let's see what happens when Peter gets there. Verse 9. When they got on land and they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread, Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went, uh, went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not, although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? For they knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So they had breakfast. They broke bread. They were friends. But even after breakfast, Peter still hadn't managed to address the issue at hand. The elephant was still in the room. He had seen Jesus two other times, but he hadn't spoken with him then. 
And he knew that this conversation needed to come out, but he couldn't get the words out. They were stuck in his throat. All these other guys were around. It was never the right time to really kind of talk to Jesus and kind of talk this thing out, kind of confess it, bring it up. Peter couldn't, so Jesus did. Look in verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Can you imagine what that question would have sounded like to Peter? Jesus comes out asking a question like that, not not a question that says, hey, tell me about what happened. He he gives Peter an instant moment to declare his allegiance, to begin to reset the wrong just a little bit. He says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And I wonder if he was waiting on Jesus' response after that to say, well, then why did you betray me? Why did you let me down? Why did you deny me? Why did you curse at that girl whenever she said that she'd seen you with me? But Jesus doesn't do that. He simply says, feed my lambs. And then he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. So a second time, Jesus reiterates the same thing. And then verse 17, he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. This is such a beautiful moment in this little exchange Jesus doesn't bring up the past. Jesus doesn't rake Peter across the coals for penance for his mistake. He doesn't say, here's the things you've got to do to earn my trust back. He doesn't say, here, go do these things so that I believe these things. He doesn't ask Peter where his loyalties lie. He simply says, Peter, if you love me, here's what I want you to do. Go feed the sheep. If you're ready to follow me, feed the sheep. This is similar to what Jesus had said before. In John chapter 14, Jesus says, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And now he says to Peter, If you love me, you'll feed the sheep. He says it to Peter, and and he asks him three times, and it's frustrating to Peter. He's, He's grieved by the fact that Jesus would ask him three times, but it was necessary because Peter had denied Jesus three times. And so he gives him a chance to kind of walk those words back and say, you know that I love you, Jesus. It's necessary for Peter to give him the assurance that Jesus had indeed commissioned him, that he had indeed opened and invited him back. And not only in these questions does he bring, bring Peter back into the fold of the disciples, you know, he could have kind of busted him rank. He had made him kind of the captain of the disciples, and he could have busted rank and said, all right, come on back into the fold. You need to take Judas's place, you know. Why don't, why don't you take his job, and we'll see how things go from there. No, no, no. He brings him back in, and he says, go teach. Go feed. Go. Do. I'm giving you a job. I'm giving you a task. I'm giving you a mission. He gives him a responsibility, and Peter is quick to jump on it. 
He says, not only am I bringing you back, I'm going to make you the under-shepherd. I'm leaving, but someone's going to need to feed the sheep. And Peter, that's going to be you. And so now he had a place, he had a mission, he was restored. And Jesus does it threefold. And he was driving it home to Peter that there wasn't just kind of a wave of the hand of come on back, but he was fully reinstating him. He was putting him back on the team, giving him a job and making him captain again. And just like that, in those few little words, Jesus had absorbed the betrayal. He had tested Peter's faith. He had given him a mission. Just like that, in those few little words, Jesus doesn't lord it over him, doesn't hold it over him, doesn't doesn't let him have it for which he so richly deserved it. He simply brings him back and says, you love me, go do this. It is a simple yet profound moment all at the same time. But Jesus didn't stop there, and I think Peter maybe wishes that he did, but he did not stop there. He had more to say to his newly restored disciple. Verse 18, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, Follow me. So Jesus ups the ante just a little bit. He had tested Peter's faith, tested his willingness to recommit, to walk back what had happened in that courtyard, but now he has more for Peter to hear. Peter has reasserted his allegiance to Jesus as his king, but now he says, hey, there's more to it than just feeding my sheep. What you need to know is that things are going to go really bad for you at some point, Peter. That you used to be in control, you used to be autonomous, you used to be able to walk and do whatever you want, but there's coming a day when you will die. And you will die in a very harsh way. You will be under someone else's control. You will be in captivity. Peter, things are about to go really bad for you. And here's what I want you to know. Follow me. Follow me. He reissued his call from the beginning. The first time Jesus said, come follow me, Peter laid down his nets and walked away from his livelihood. A tremendous act of faith. This time, come follow me doesn't sound so much like lay down your nets. This time, come follow me sounds something more like come and die. It is not an easy thing to hear. That's a hard sell. But Jesus doesn't blink whenever he says it. And the question is, will Peter? After all, you could expect him to, right? Yeah, he's looking at Jesus who has risen from the dead, but he's telling Peter, hey Peter, you didn't have the courage to stick with me before. Come follow me now, and I'm telling you up front, you're going to die for it. Could we blame Peter if he was like, I don't think I'm up for this. I think I've already shown my true colors here. I don't think I can do this, Jesus. 
Peter knew well the consequences of what would happen if he were to follow Jesus, and he knew what Jesus was saying was probably true. When Jesus called him to die, he had no doubt that Jesus, or when, Pe- when Jesus called Peter to die, he had no doubt that Jesus meant it. So what does Peter do? He does the exact thing that we are so tempted to do. I'm so glad that the text right here doesn't say, and Peter, you know, stuck out his chest and said, I'll do it. Let's go. Let's roll. I'm all in. I'm so glad that it doesn't say that because I would have felt like, ah, that's not my response. My response is a little bit more like Peter's. And I wonder if yours is too. John chapter 21, verse 20. Peter hears this, come follow me, after after he's told that he's going to die. And what does Peter do? He turns around and he looks at the other disciples around him. And this is what he says. Verse 20, Peter turned and he saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. The one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? Don't get lost in verse 20. This is what John does a lot. He doesn't mention himself by name. He gives himself these little code phrases so that we can kind of figure out that's who he's talking about. So basically what this says is Peter turned and he saw John. And when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about him? And Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remains until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So Peter screams, you can't ask this of me, Jesus. This isn't fair. You guys that are, that are parents, you've got kids, especially if you've got multiple kids, you've heard this a time or two, right? This isn't fair. This is the favorite refrain of my kids. Anytime I ask one of my kids to do things, the very first thing, the very first calculation that goes through their head is, well, what do, what do they have to do? And if the two don't somehow line up in their head, the response to me is not, I'm going to go do this thing I was asked. The response to me is, well, what about them? And this is what Peter does. He says, what, 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 about, what about John? Do, do you expect him to die like this too? Because if we're all going to die, then I'm in. But if it's just me, that doesn't seem right. Are you still punishing me, Jesus? What's going on here? Why are you doing this to me? This isn't fair. Why would you say this about me? And then Jesus' response is one that echoes in my ear at every turn in my life, it seems like, over the last 10 years or so. Jesus says, I can do what I want. John could live forever or he could die tomorrow. I can do whatever I want. What happens to John is none of your business. The only thing you need to be concerned about right now is you follow me. You follow me. That's the call. Peter, don't worry about John. You got your own stuff to worry about here. These are now the words that I think echo in Peter's mind, that replace the crow of the rooster and instead echo all throughout the book of Acts. You go to the book of Acts and you almost can write over the text of the book of Acts, Jesus saying, you follow me. 
Peter will go from a guy who is timid and who is nervous and who is worried about whether or not John's going to die to a guy who will stand up and preach and then will go to the, to the, uh, the, the, the Sanhedrin and those that wish to punish him and say, I've got to do what I've got to do. I've got these words that Jesus has given me, that God has given me, and I've got to speak them. So do what you must. I got to think that in that moment, what's going on in Peter's mind is that he's saying, Jesus said, feed my sheep and follow me. You follow me. That's the call. And it's the call I want you to hear this morning. Because remember, this is a call that's going to Peter who had just denied Jesus. Yet Jesus extends the call and he says, I offer you the opportunity to come back. But here's what it's going to cost you. Not because you're being punished, but because that's the call. You see, every single one of the disciples would go on to die a violent death as martyrs. Save John, who would die in exile on the island of Patmos. They all had to give up everything to follow Jesus. Everything to follow him. That was the call. Every one of them had to come to that reckoning of Jesus saying, it doesn't matter what anyone else does, you follow me. But Jesus doesn't offer this to Peter because he had somehow earned a chance to be on the team. He doesn't put this call out there and give, Jesus, or give Peter this mission because somehow Peter had earned it. Instead, Jesus forgives. And then he restores. And he refuses to define Peter by his worst moment. Instead, he gives him another path. Another way forward. He gives him a mission. And he says, this is the way forward. Come walk in it. Follow me. Yes, part of that mission is that Peter would come and die. That he would die to his own agenda. That he would die to his own dreams. That he would die to his own desires. That he would die to his own rights that he would die to his sense of fairness, that he would die to his securities and his comforts, that he would die to his fears. That's all bound up in that call to come and follow me. And so it is with you this morning. When Jesus says, come follow me, what he's telling you is, I'm not going to define you by your worst moments because if I did, I would say, I do not know you. You cannot follow me. I cannot trust you. You are unworthy to be called my disciple. If he defined us by our worst moments, we would have no standing before him. But instead he says, do you love me if you do feed my sheep? Do you love me if you do go on mission? Do you love me if you do? Here's the task. Go and tell others and follow me. 
And the call for us is no less than the call for Peter. It is a call to come and die, to die to our fears, to die to our desires, to die to our dreams, to die to our rights, to our comforts, to our securities, to everything that we hold dear, to die to all of those things. And very much for some of you, for some of us maybe this morning, to die outright for him. That's all bound up in that call for us to follow him. And so long as we hang on to those things, we cannot heed the call. You cannot hang on to something whenever Jesus says you must die. When you die, you let go. So long as we define ourselves by what we have or haven't done by our best moments or our worst moments, by what we have or haven't earned, by what we have or haven't achieved, by what's in our bank account or what's not in our bank account. So long as we define ourselves by those things, we won't know the peace that comes with following Christ because the call is to come and die to all of those things. And that's what it means to be a Christian. Not to come to church, not to get Jesus to sign off on your dream, not to get Jesus to sign off on what it means for you to to, to do these things that you wanted to do before you knew Jesus. Now you just get to do them with Jesus kind of sprinkled on top. That's not being a Christian. The call to be a Christian is to come and die. To go out on mission. And to follow Jesus. If I could tell you one thing this morning, it would be this. When Jesus bids you come and die, he is calling us to live the lives we were made for. Because Jesus and his mission are the only things worthy of our lives. Go back to Peter's moment on that boat where he leaps off of that boat When he dove in, is your relationship with Jesus like that? Where you so desperately need to speak to him, where you so desperately need the spirit inside of of you, when you so desperately need that forgiveness that you forsake all, you dive in, close and all, forget your coworkers, forget your friends, forget your family, forget anything that's around you, forget all self-decency, forget all these other things that you define yourself as, you just jump in the water because you got to get to Jesus. Is that what your relationship with him is like? That's what Peter did because he knew in that moment it's the only thing he could do. For the rest of his life, that, that, that rooster would echo in his ears. And he would define himself by his worst moment. Do you define yourself by your worst moments? By those moments where you know you don't add up, where you failed, where you've been terrible, when you've been a bad husband, a bad wife, a bad child, bad student, a bad coworker, a bad friend where you've betrayed even yourself? Do you define yourself by those things? Or, or, or differently, do you define yourself by your best moments? Where you've white-knuckled it and you've shown how good you are and how great you can do things? Because Peter used to do that too. He did that too if you go back in the Gospels. 
Peter realizes you can't define yourself by any of those things because that's not what the mission of God is about. Peter knew he couldn't define himself by his best moments because he was too flawed and too too weak and too scared. But Peter knew he couldn't define himself by his worst moments because he couldn't live and abide that way. He needed Jesus to redefine him. Peter jumped into that water to get to that shore because he knew that if he didn't have Jesus, he didn't have anything. You may be asking, do we find out that Peter carry this mission out? Did he live this out? He carried it out all the way through the book of Acts. He carried it out to his death. He followed that call. He said, forget about John. I will follow you. Because he knew if that relationship with Jesus wasn't right, nothing would be right. And so when he went after him, what he found was forgiveness. And he found grace. And he found a friend. And he found a savior. And he found a mission. Those are all things that each of us must find. The question is, have you thrown yourself in the ocean to get to the shore? Have you realized that Jesus is truly everything that you need? If I could tell you one thing, what I would tell you is that we have to need Jesus more than we need air. That we have to need Jesus as much as Peter did. We have to be desperate for him. We need to feel the weight of our failure. And then we need to feel the freedom of knowing we will not be defined by that failure. Because Jesus is enough. Because Jesus is everything. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning... Your grace is enough. You are everything. When you sent your son to this earth, he he gave us a mission, a mission that we are unqualified for. A mission that we should not be on because we don't belong on the team at all. And Father, we feel it. We confess our unworthiness. And Father, we praise you that Jesus extends the offer to say, come follow me. Unworthy sinner, enemy, rebel, denier, sinner. Father, will you make us as desperate as Peter? You make us even more desperate to feel the joy of forgiveness bought on the cross, secured by the resurrection. And may we have the direction of the mission that Jesus has put us on. Father, may we feel the weight same time the joy and freedom of forgiveness. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.